to bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Philippa. Great. So in case you haven't picked it up, today is Advent Sunday. But I wonder what that means to you. Our culture is pretty clear. Uh, If it's relevant at all, Advent Sunday is all about one thing, warming up for Christmas. You're quite right, Keita. Whatever Christmas means. And I'm sorry, I'm still a little bit scarred by uh, Black Friday and all that uh, that went. Uh, And uh, I'm not really sure that that's what Christmas means. But anyway, back to Advent. Um, Advent is in many ways symbolized by the Advent calendar. Yes, I know there's an Advent wreath, and it's great to, uh, to celebrate that today. And Advent candles in our house, Lois is always very assiduous about making sure that we have an Advent candle and we have the coming of the light of the world and so on. But for me, it's always been the Advent calendar. Um, as children, we, we always had an Advent calendar. And in those days... It wasn't an advent calendar that was produced by a chocolate company. It was just an advent calendar. You know. And there were four of us, and we used to try and, uh, try and work out. You know, we'd each open one each day and so on. And I always tried to maneuver it so that I could open it on either the 24th or the 25th, the day of the great reveal, because it was a double door uh, window. And, you know, there was Mary and... and baby Jesus in the manger and Joseph and the shepherds and, and everything. Um, and that was, that was what it was all about. It was about preparing for the stable scene in Bethlehem. And in many ways, that's as it should be, because Advent is all about preparing for the coming of Jesus. But yet, while our fixation is on the coming of Jesus in, as a baby in Bethlehem, the Bible is really clear that there will be a second coming. And we need to prepare for that too. And that's what our reading was all about this morning. I kind of think of it this way, trying to make sense of it all. The first coming of Jesus ushered in the beginning of the kingdom of God. And the second will be its total fulfillment. And we live in a time where we see the kingdom of God gradually unfolding. Yet the second coming of Jesus is not something we tend to talk about a great deal in church. I wonder if that's because sometimes some sort of um, evangelists have have tended to to focus on the, you know, one will be taken and another left. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of this, the reason you should be a Christian is fear of missing out, FOMO. Uh, and I just kind of don't get that, um, personally. Um, that uh, I don't buy that a God of love is going to try and frighten people into the king, his kingdom, uh, and so on. But there's a great danger, isn't there, of therefore throwing the baby out with the bathwater and forgetting about the second coming because it's quite uncomfortable um, and it's been, at times, I think, a bit misused, and so on. So I thought a good place to start this morning is to remind ourselves of what will be obtained by the second coming and how it's described in the book of Revelation. It goes like this. You can see it on the screen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. 
and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Fantastic words, aren't they? We need to hang on to them. We need to hang on to that because what's being described here is the culmination of the coming of the kingdom of God when the world and everything in it, including mankind, is restored to its created intent. The second coming will be about the restoration of all things, about a reinstitution of holiness, of unity, of peace. What creation was meant to know and flourish within. It's a kingdom where righteous relationships and divine justice will reign and where oppression and evil will have no place. In the kingdom of God, peace, not violence, will rule the land. Love and mercy will be its chief virtues. In the kingdom of God, the lowly will be exalted and the meek will be blessed, while the haughty and the proud will be humbled. And that presents us with an amazing hope. And it's certainly worth something that's going to be well worth waiting for and wanting to be part of. So let me carry on and explore what else the Bible tells us about the second coming. If that's the what, let's think about the how. And I'm going to read a couple of short passages, firstly from Mark's Gospel and then from Paul's uh, first letter to the Thessalonians that describe what will happen at the second coming. First from Mark chapter 13. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he'll send his angels and he'll gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And Paul develops the image. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. No wonder he concludes it with, therefore encourage one another with these words. What a wonderful, inspirational image. And that provides the substance of one of my most favourite Advent hymns, which I do hope Sam will get a chance to sing at some point. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. What we're seeing here is a picture of the fulfilment of the coming of of, of the kingdom of God, heralding a new heaven and a new earth, and brought about by the magnificent, triumphant return of the Lord Jesus. So it's perhaps no surprise that our next question should be, and thank you so much, wherever you've gone, Amy, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, when's it going to happen? Please, please. And Jesus, in our passage, tackles this question. And he's talking to his disciples towards the end of his earthly ministry about his return. And he knows that's what they want to know. When's it going to happen? 
So he gives them an answer. And to be perfectly honest, it's an answer which neither his disciples nor probably we find terribly satisfying. It's this. It says, About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's tough, isn't it? That flies in the face of of all that we want to be. Yeah, we always want to know the answer. When's it going to happen? You know, when's it going to happen? We are impatient people. We want to know that. Only the other day, I was coming back from an overseas trip at Heathrow, and we landed in good time, and I was eager to get home. So I got to the carousel to pick up my baggage, And I got to the carousel to pick up my baggage, and I waited. And I waited. 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. Patience was running pretty thin by this stage. And I saw a man in a high-vis jacket. And I thought, ah, he'll know the answer. So I went up to him and said, when's my baggage going to arrive? He almost quoted this passage to me. Don't ask me, mate. It'll come when it comes. (laughs) (laughs) So... we're not good at waiting are we we're not patient people I'm I'm particularly not a patient person Um, I'm not a patient person when I know how long I've got to wait for something and when I I don't know how long I've got to wait it's even worse it's really hard we've all waited spent a lot of our lives waiting for something maybe it's something relatively trivial like my baggage or something or maybe it's something a lot more heavy and serious, a hospital appointment or the results of some tests or something. Well, let me give you another example. Um, Waiting for a child to be born. Slightly relevant for a Christmas theme, you know, and uh, certainly, as we'll see, it's it's very much in line with biblical imagery. And sharing a little bit of my own experience of that, you're always given a due date, aren't you? This is when you should expect it. Our second son, Jack... Um, we got the due date and so on but Jack has never been one who has found that he wants to be confined by what the expectations other people put on him so the due date came and the next day came and the next day came and the next day came and eventually after two weeks after the due date just when the doctors were going to say well we're going to have to do something about this we can't wait any longer Jack decided now was the moment Um, uh, And that was a source of of great joy and probably relief, particularly for Lois, I suspect, but also for me. Although I have to say that my my joy was slightly tempered by the fact that Jack chose to arrive on the day that I had tickets for the England-West Indies test match at the Oval. (laughs) If only I had known the day and the hour. (laughs) Yeah. But as I say, the, the analogy of a child being born is an image that is biblical. And it's one that, as we look forward to the second coming, we see these, the imagery of, of childbirth coming to Here's a verse from Romans 8, which illustrates what I mean. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And as with a child being born, when there are signs of birth are imminent, I have to take this on uh, the testimony of my wife, as I've never experienced it, you start to feel that things are happening. And it's just the same 
as we await the birth of the new age that will be heralded by the second coming of Christ. And Jesus was clear about what these birth pangs would look like. He's already told his disciples in the conversation from which our reading was taken. If we went back to earlier in the chapter and read verses 6 to 8, we'd hear this. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. And it's easy to look around now and see exactly the signs of these birth pangs. They stare us in the face. I've just grabbed here three images from literally from this week's news. Here's the first one. It's what's happening in the east of Europe at the moment. It's wars and rumors of wars. I could have picked any number. Or here's another one. This is what's happening in north of Kenya, South Sudan, uh, and Somalia, and the Horn of Africa at the moment. Almost unreported by the media, but the most severe famine for many, many years there. And even this week in Indonesia, as we see in this third slide, earthquakes. Everything that Jesus said there is happening and staring us in the face at the moment. But these are not new phenomena. There were just as many evident signs for those first Christians, those first disciples that he was talking to, who were looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Wars, again, were only too evident. The fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 was about to happen. Or if you want stories of famines, just read the Acts of the Apostle and the way that early Christians supported other Christians going through famines. And historians, of course, will tell you about earthquakes and who, um, though it's not technically an earthquake, I can't help thinking of the eruption of Pompeii as a sign of a birth pang. So what's the point of the passage? Is it simply saying that at some point, sometime, something will happen and it will be good? No, I think it's a bit more than that. I think the clue is in the last verse of today's passage in these words. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. What Jesus is saying is be ready. Be ready. But what does being ready look like? That's the last question that I want us to focus on today. And there's a kind of joke that does the rounds from time to time. You see it on T-shirts and on badges and something. It says, Jesus is coming. Look busy. You know. <laughs> I'm really not sure that's the answer. I don't think we're required to look busy. I think we're required to be expectant, to be confident, to be certain, and to be hopeful. As Christians, we are called to be people of hope. We have a sure and certain hope. We are called to wait in hope. And our hope is not a verb, it's not a noun, it's a person, it's a name. Our hope is in a God who loves us so much that he gave his only son to be our saviour. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Many of you will recognize those words from the Apostles' Creed. Can anyone give me the next line? He will come again. Exactly. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Thank goodness the vicar knows that one. (laughs) Yeah. Our hope is in God, who gave up his only son to be our saviour. Our hope is in God, who promises that nothing will separate us from him, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God. Our hope is in a God who has promised us that he will be with us to the end of the age. To the end of the age. So as we move into this Advent season, we may well find ourselves singing another Advent carol at some point. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Which, of course, Emmanuel means God with us. And let us remember that the Emmanuel that we sing about is not just a moment in a stable 2,000 years ago, but is an eternal promise which will ultimately be filled when the Lord returns in clouds of glory. We may not know the day or the hour, but my friends, it really doesn't matter because that time is in the hands of a God, our God, who is almighty and all-loving. This is the unique and all-surpassing hope that we have as Christians, as God's people. So as the writer of Hebrews has it, let us, un- let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I want to finish with just a very simple prayer. It's a prayer that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians. And as I pray it, let us all pray it together for all of us as we move into the Advent season. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.